Guardian angels and patron saints, pray pray for us. Today we celebrate the Feast of the Transfiguration. If you're not accustomed to going to daily Mass, Mass during the week, you may not have celebrated this feast for, for a number of years. This year it happens to fall on Sunday, so we celebrate it. And it is the feast, as we hear in the Gospel, of that moment where Jesus goes up Mount Tabor and his glory is revealed to his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And this is a, a strange event. It's not in character for the Lord's incarnate ministry, is it? We don't see many of these instances where the radiant glory of God is shining through the person, the very flesh of Jesus, right? We don't see that really again until the resurrection and the, the book of Revelation. But here today, the veil is parted. The curtains are open just a little bit and the light shining from the heavens, from the heart of Jesus and his eternal sonship radiates our minds. And it's, it's fascinating how the authors try to describe these things. Words fail them. They can't capture what it is that they're seeing. His hair was just so white. White. What's the whitest thing I can think of? Wool. It was like wool. That doesn't seem very grand. It's just, I don't know how else to describe it. Wheels of burning fire. I've never seen anything like this. I don't know how to describe it. This doesn't even begin to capture what it is that was striking the eyes of my mind. And they convey to us a certain sense of the mystery that we're approaching here when we approach Jesus. That though he is outwardly humble, the furnace of the divine majesty still burns strong. And in many ways, this mirrors our own lives. We don't always see God in his perfection and in his beauty. Much of our lives are spent in the daily, humdrum, ordinary service of the Lord, much like the disciples who would have shared their meals with him, walked with him, listened to him teach, and minister to people. Yeah, from time to time. For us, too, the curtains are parted. And we glimpse something that goes beyond just me. This is not my particular religious preference. This is God present, alive, working, the creator himself. The first reading speaks about how this vision of the prophet Daniel refers to the ancient one receiving the Son of Man, coming on a cloud. And when this Son of Man is presented to the Ancient One upon the throne, he receives dominion, glory, and kingship. This put me in mind of some of the reading that I've been doing lately. Over the last few months, given many of the challenges at our school and in our parishes, I've been very conscious of the fact that I have many ways to grow as a leader and as a pastor. And I've been reading and studying and speaking with those who have the best guidance and commentary to offer on the role of of a leader and resorting to both Catholic and, and secular resources. I've come across one in particular that I've found extremely profound. It's just called true leadership. And if you can't see there in the back, 
it has a picture of Jesus on the front. For he is the one true leader. He is the king of the universe, which is to say he is the leader of us all. And what this book does, and what I found so profound and challenging, is that all leadership is a participation in the leadership of Jesus. All leadership is a participation in the leadership of Jesus. Whether we exercise that in our careers, in our communities, in our families and relationships, all leadership is a participation in the leadership of Jesus. And this presents an extended reflection. What is, what is it that Jesus does as a leader? How does he lead? And how are we to imitate him so as to participate in his leadership? It's, it's very informative. It's very helpful. Uh, I have other copies if you'd like to borrow them or read them yourselves. I encourage for anyone who's looking for a way to grow as a Christian to read this book. I'd like to share with you some passages that were so good, I I thought about restating them in my own words, but I'm going to get out of the way and just let them speak for themselves because they speak about who it is that Jesus is, that his role as the king has a certain quality that I'd like to share with you based on these passages that I found in this book. So, The Gospels tell the remarkable story of the manner by which God determined to reverse the fall and to establish his eternal kingdom among humans. And they reveal the extraordinary personality of the one called Christ, who is the ruler. They recount the deeds of a king who won back his kingdom, not by violent conquest, but by a loving appeal to truth who entered into his inheritance through toil and suffering, who walked among his subjects without any of the outward signs of authority, and who, though superior to them in every respect, took the position of a servant among them. The Gospels tell of the establishment of a kingdom that was genuinely in this world, but that transcended the world a kingdom that would maintain its hold over its subjects, not by coercion, but by entering into their willing minds and hearts. They tell the previously unthinkable tale of how the eternal God united himself to the human race in order to save us from the disastrous results of our rebellion. All of this is unspeakably good news. But there is an important point to remember in this good news. Though Christ comes humbly and seeks out followers by a free appeal to mind and to will, he is nonetheless the leader, the rightful ruler of the human race. Though he does not yet demand or coerce obedience, it is his task to set right the ills of the world and to bring all of creation to its rightful allegiance. Paul speaks of the future time when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Because he is God himself, the word of God, united to the human race, all authority, all leadership is his. This brings us back once more to our foundational principle 
All true leadership is a participation in the leadership of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of, an, of a little uh, episode that took place during our parish town hall meeting back in December. There was an open meeting where we asked parishioners to come together and sort of voice their concerns. And at one point near the end of the meeting, there, were, uh, there was a little conflict between different members of the group. And somebody said something along the lines of, you know, Father, we're here to do what you want. It's your parish. And then a number of people immediately whipped around and said, it's not his parish. It's our parish. And I didn't say this at the time, but I thought about that a lot. Which, which do you think it is? Or neither? I, te- I tend to think it's neither. It's not my parish. I didn't build this. I didn't make this community come together. I'm here as a steward for a little while, and I have a report to deliver when my master demands it of me. It's not my parish. It is my master's parish. It is your master's parish. It is Jesus's parish. It doesn't belong to me, and it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Christ. This is what that means, practically. When we say all leadership is a participation in the leadership of Jesus Christ. And we submit ourselves to his will in order to carry out his purposes, no matter what they might be, for our parish. I'll continue. This truth does not mean that Christ is simply the strongest and the most forceful of powers, the top dog who bends all other wills to his. God is unlike any other being. He is not one among them, but rather the ground of the existence of all that is. In him, we live and move and have our being. To be rightly ordered to the will of God is not to be oppressed by a superior power. It is to enter into a communion of love, apart from which we can never find freedom and life. There's no zero-sum game here. The rule of Christ does not stifle us or limit our potential. It is the atmosphere within which our minds and wills breathe a free and healthy air, and our potentialities find their rightful fulfillment. The greater one's fidelity to Christ's rule, the more truly one's life will be lived. A couple of analogies to help unpack that. Christ does not coerce our obedience. And what he asks of us is not a relationship of superior to subordinate, but a communion of love. A much better way to understand or grasp what this communion of love entails is to consider the example first of spouses. A husband has authority over his wife, but so too a wife has authority over her husband because both of them serve a common good that is beyond both of their individual needs. And so a husband will make decisions about how he spends his money and his time based not not on his own preference, but on that of his family. I have Chiefs tickets. 
my kid is sick, my wife needs my help, I'm not going to the Chiefs game. Now, in some sense, he's free to make that decision. No one's forcing him to do it. But he is, in a sense, obeying the demands that his commitments make upon him. And so to a mother, we know when a child is born, the mother's gaze tends to dial in to the exclusion of all else because this is taking all she's got. Yes, of course, she's free to order her life in such a way as to make her motherhood possible, but having made that commitment, all sorts of demands and responsibilities are placed upon her that she carries out to the best of her ability in obedience. And the two of them together create this third thing called a marriage and God willing, a family that in a sense, both of them, all of them are subordinate to. That's the kind of obedience God wants from us. Maybe another analogy. This isn't so common nowadays, but when I was a kid, there were a lot of smokers. I remember some of my family were heavy smokers. My Uncle Jim smoked a pack, a soft pack of Camel 99s every day. And he had a kegerator in his living room that was always full, always ready to go. But I found out when I was a kid that, of course, smoking will probably kill you much earlier than you would naturally pass away. And though I don't remember a particular circumstance of this, I've seen it so many times, I'm sure I did the same. Uncle Jim, why are you smoking? It's going to kill you. I don't want you to die. You all heard similar stories to that, right? We, we have all kinds of examples like that. Don't do that thing. Grandpa, Grandma, Auntie, I, I don't want you to die. I love you. I want to spend as much of my life as I can with you. And time is short. Let's not make it shorter. And you can imagine a grandma or a grandpa or an auntie thinking to herself, you know what? That kid's right. I better quit this. I'm done with this. Why am I, why am I caught up in this garbage? It's going to kill me. and It's going to take me away from the people that I love and the things that I value most, the things that make my life worth living. That's the kind of coercion or command that the Lord gives us. Why are you doing these things? They're going to kill you spiritually. But I love you, and I don't want to lose you. The description in the prophet Daniel is of the Son of Man receiving dominion, glory, and kingship, taking the throne of the universe. All peoples, nations, and languages serve him. So too, the throne of the universe is also to be found in us. In the center of our hearts, there is a throne. And there's someone or something there. Either the rightful king or someone or something else. Who sits on that throne that belongs to the Son of Man? Is it 
a relationship? Is it an object? Is it a certain creature that's displaced the creator? Is it just me? Am I sitting on the throne of the Son of Man? The promise of the scriptures is clear. Every reign, every kingdom, every dominion will be destroyed, including the dominion that we exercise over ourselves. In the end, it will either be Christ or ourselves enthroned at the center of our lives. And that is the division between those who live forever in heaven and those who are raised to the eternal death of hell. Christ speaks to us as he spoke to the disciples on Mount Tabor. As we contemplate these ultimate things, these majestic truths that are meant to reconfigure the world and bring them into allegiance with their true ruler, our king says to us, rise, do not be afraid. And they raised their eyes and saw no one else but Jesus alone. May we be blessed with that vision this holy day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.